Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He's been recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings nearly 40 years of experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. If it's the first time you've listened to the show, hey, welcome aboard. If you've heard the show in the past, you know the general segment. First, we talk a little bit about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. The second part of the show, we talk about politics, history, religion, sometimes films, and today we're going to be talking to Nat Segalov, publicist, and we're talking about, I think, the greatest screenwriter of the late 20th century, Absolutely. John Milius, and of course, a, a director who directed many great fine films. And to start off, we have one of our attorneys with us, Justin Daly. Ray. Thank you for having me. Oh, you didn't say that before you came down here. <laughs> but Justin without- likes to work. <laughs> For those of you who don't know Justin, his beard right now is about six inches. It's very cool. So, He's very cool. Yeah. How, how long is it going to grow? Uh, every time somebody tells me I should cut it, All right. a little no. bit more. I, I've often expressed the thought that you should cut it, but that's, I guess, so it's going to grow another few inches. <laughs> oh. All right. So, Justin, you do most of or our tough real estate closings in the office. So, what. What question do you have or what comment do you have about real estate generally? Oh, well, uh, you know, generally about real estate, the, the question that comes up, you know, all the time is, you know, it's actually surprising. A lot of people think that they can just get Medicaid on their primary residence. So I have a lot of clients who come in and, you know, they'll ask, you know, I'm told that I don't need to do anything with the deed of my house. I can get Medicaid or my wife can get Medicaid. And I let them know, well, you, you might be able to apply, you might get the services, but that's not good for a long-term strategy. 
That's a big issue that we have and that I run into where somebody somewhere along the way, whether it's a social worker at a nursing home facility or somebody at a local agency says, oh, don't worry about it. You'll get your Medicaid services. And um, they're not giving them the long-term planning strategy of what happens after they're gone if there's a probate proceeding where Medicaid will come in and put a lien on that house. Yeah, and that is a very good point, you know, because... Yeah, let's say somebody's applying for home care Medicaid and they're using a social worker to apply for the home care Medicaid. And the social worker correctly says, well, you don't have to change the deed of your house to get Medicaid. You can own a house and get Medicaid. The problem is when you die, if the deed to the house is in your name alone when you pass away, well, Medicaid's going to put a lien on that house. And sometimes, you know, you have home care for five, six, seven years. At $100,000 a year, you might have a five, six, seven, dollars $700,000 lien on your house, which in some cases, depending on the value of your house, maybe make your house almost unsellable. And we, we've seen that a lot, and more than a lot, let's say, in co-ops, because a lot of co-ops don't allow you to transfer the stock certificate to a co-op to a trust. And another another thing that comes up quite often where people are actually told right off, hey, you have to private pay um, because you, I have too much income. And they're not told the second part of the question or the second response is, well, have you heard about a pooled trust where you can shelter that excess income? You know, you're allowed $1,600 approximately. Um, and then anything above that you would lose to Medicaid, but you don't necessarily have to lose it. Um, that's a big thing that people aren't told. And uh, we, we have actually had people come into the office saying, Hey, yeah, my mom's given over $500 or even as much as a thousand dollars to pay toward her care where that money could be sheltered and be used to pay for their bills. Yeah. Let me explain that a little bit more. Let's say somebody has roughly $3,000 a month income and I'm going to use even numbers just to keep the math simple. So let's say $1,500, you can apply over $1,500. Technically, your income is too high for Medicaid. The actual number is a couple hundred dollars more than that. But again, we're going to use even numbers. So let's say you have $3,000 a month income. Technically, that's too much to get on home care, Medicaid, community Medicaid. What you can do, you can put, let's say, half of that income, roughly $1,500 a month, in a pooled income trust. And that pooled income trust will pay for you, let's say, if you do own a house, pay for your real estate taxes, your insurance, um, cable, gas, electric, groceries, or whatever. And, if, of course, if you rent, it could pay for your rent. So, in other words, you don't really lose the money. Some people think, well, if I put my money in a pooled income trust, I'm going to lose it. You don't lose it. You have to spend it. And if you don't spend it before you're gone, you will lose the money. But there's no reason not to spend the money. So let's say, again, if you have $3,000 a month income, you put $1,500 into the trust. The $1,500 pays, let's say, the expenses on your house. If your rent pays your rent, if your rent doesn't cover the whole $1,500, you're in subsidized housing or something like that. Well, in that case, too, um, it could pay for your groceries, your gas, electric, cable, whatever bill ordinarily you pay. It can pay for car payments. You know, now sometimes we see people with pooled income trust. They have five, six, seven thousand dollars a month income, and the problem is, if you do want to apply for Medicaid, you have to spend all of that income. So, what some people do, and I know it sounds crazy, but you buy a car and you make car payments, and the car payments then can be used to reduce your income so that you can apply for Medicaid. The 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 point, I guess, we probably want to get across: if you're going to apply for home care Medicaid, get the right advice, because we see a lot of people who 
get turned down because the second question wasn't asked. And, of course, if you're in the public, how are you going to know what the second question is? Um, the, you know, like I said, the second question is not asked, and the solutions are not always given. So, you know, the, the soaks worker, depending on you have, they may mean well. They may they may not know all the rules and laws that are available to you. You're going to say something, Beth? Yeah, because years ago I had to, there was a big brouhaha, um, husband and wife, and the wife essentially was impoverished because um, the nursing home uh, told her that she had to private pay because they had too much money in their bank account. And this is a lady that lived in an apartment, and um, I was trying to figure out what on earth happened, because she came to us after her husband had passed away. So I, I went to the person. The I finally got to the CFO at this nursing home and said, and his position was that they were not responsible for estate planning for people going into their nursing home. Well, one of the big reasons is if you private pay at a nursing home, they get a lot more money than if that person is on Medicaid. Um, Medicaid has a fixed amount that they go, but private pay, they get thousands of dollars more each month for a private pay patient. So there are some well-meaning people. My only point was there's some very well-meaning people that maybe just don't know, but there are other people that don't want the people to know. All right, but in any event, if you have a relative who's thinking about applying for home care Medicaid, um, you may want to schedule an appointment with us at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 718 And we should also throw out there that the Medicaid laws for home care Medicaid, at least tentatively right now, are scheduled to change April 1st. And the reason I say tentatively is because they kicked the can down the road so many times in the past. I'm not 100% sure April 1st is going to be the absolute deadline. But up until April 1st, there is no look-back period to apply for home care Medicaid, community Medicaid. So somebody, let's say, has $100,000 in the bank, they put it in the trust today, they can apply for home care Medicaid on January 1st, the first day of the month following the transfer. They put the money in the trust in January. They can apply on February 1st. They put the money in the trust in February. They can apply March 1st. The problem, we have to get these transfers done. If you put it into the trust on April 1st, the law is going to change. So your deadline might be you have to put the, you have to put the application in before April 1st. So... Yes, might they kick the can down the road again because they've been doing that for like two, three years. I think originally it was scheduled to change October 1st, two years ago. You know, so it's gone two years and a couple of months now, and they haven't changed it. But it is it is scheduled to be implemented. The change in rules is scheduled to be implemented on April 1st, which if you're doing planning, if you have assets, they're going to take a couple of months to transfer. Let's say you have U.S. savings bonds. Uh, you have stocks in a brokerage account. You have annuities. Sometimes it takes a couple of weeks, if not months, to switch over annuities. You should start doing it now and get a plan together so you can put the application in before April 1st. Now, Justin, you know, our next guest was Nat Segaloff, and he's going to be talking about 
his friend John Milius. And John Milius, I think, was really the, the best screenwriter of the late 20th century and, you know, and did a lot of accomplishments in the early 20th century, yeah, and uh, directed a lot of great movies. Now, he had some health problems, especially now he's had a stroke, so he can't join us directly. But um, some of his memorable lines, you know, like in Apocalypse Now, you know, Robert Duvall, I love the smell of napalm in the morning that smells like victory. And Justin, you had one of the favorite lines. That, yeah, uh, it's uh, the question posed to Conan and, and Conan the Barbarian. What is best in life, Conan? Crush your enemies, see them driven before you, and hear the lamentation of their women. Such a great line. It yeah. really is. It truly is. But, um, and you know, it's, it's funny is, uh, two, two of his movies from the early eighties was Conan the Barbarian and then Red Dawn, which are, you know, two movies that have both been remade. So, you know, you talk about movies that are just great movies that he wrote, but also, you know, stayed in the cultural memory of everybody so much that they even remade them. They made Conan the Barbarian, remade Conan the Barbarian. Yes, they did. They remade it. It was not, you know, a watchable movie, but uh, for me, nor was the remake of Red Dawn, because, you know, I I saw two great masterpieces when I was a kid. Red Dawn is underestimated. Yes. I really do think it is. And Go Wolverines. You know, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, I got yeah, you. Yeah, I yeah. got you. <laughs> so, okay, Michigan. I forgot you were from Michigan. <laughs> well, but it also, I mean, that was remember they were the, that was the local high school team. They right. were the Wolverines in Red Dawn. So that's great. That's mo- great movies. It, great movies. I, I loved that movie. I did there, too. There have been times, you know, decades in our culture where the movies are just depressing. And then there are other ones where, you know, you have hope, where you have heroes. And I liked those those hero movies, you know? And that's at the one. heart of all these movies. Yes, that's a, yeah, that is agreed. exactly right. That is Milius. The individual has to take the, the, the right stand. No well, I remember when I was in the Army, I read an article, I think it was in the Village Voice, about John Milius. And, you know, talked about how he loved to hunt. And the interviewer asked him, what do you like to hunt skeet? And I like, I love shooting pregnant skeet. <laughs> the journalist was very upset. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. No. Yeah. He's my, the, the first movie that I like that, you know, I remember seeing directed by John Milius, which I think was his first feature film. He wrote a lot of scripts before then, but was Dillinger with Ben Johnson and Warren Oates. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was a big John Ford fan, which, of course, means a big fan of Ben Johnson. Of course, Warren Oates and Ben Johnson played brothers in uh, The Wild Bunch, and they played um, in the same thing in Major Dundee, some of the great second Peckinpah films. They both played Confederate veterans. In Major Dundee, they played Brothers in the Wild Bunch. And, you know, they were two great character actors. And John Milius started to give them their individual note. Of course, by that time, Ben Johnson won the Academy Award, so he was starting to get bigger parts anyway. But um, it's he- it's just, uh, you know, he was a memorable director. Of course, the speech in Jaws by Robert Shaw. Um when they talk about the sharks they got in touch with him our movie needs something this is Spielberg I need some help here yeah but 
Of course, Conan, The Wind and the Lion. And I liked The Wind Vince, and the Lion. Big Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I, we talk about it a little bit, but Brian Keith, you know, playing Teddy Roosevelt in The Wind and the Lion. It's a great performance. And, of course, a few years later, Brian Keith plays Teddy Roosevelt's predecessor, William McKinley, <laughs> in um, The Rough Riders, which our pal Pat Fauci was in. Playing one of the Rough Riders back then, so I look forward. We're going to be talking to Nat Segaloff again, who's been on the show before, and we're going to be talking about John Millish. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in a few minutes. Thank you for listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by Justin. Thank you for having me. My wife Beth. Yeah, I'm here. And my son Michael. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it harder to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A home equity conversion mortgage may be the answer for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. Give me a call so our team here at Contour Mortgage can show you how the loan program works and how much you and your family may qualify for. My job is to help you find the best solution for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this mortgage program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-954-7463. Once again, that's 888-954-7463, and you could be on your way to a better retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591, Contour Mortgage Corporation, NMLS number 34384, 990 Stewart Avenue, Suite 660, Garden City, New York, 11530, Licensed Mortgage Banker, New York State Department of Financial Services. Hi, this is Patrick Wayne. I had the good fortune to be raised by a man of strength and courage, a man of true grit. My father, John Wayne, died of stomach cancer in 1979, and in his characteristic style, he ignored advice to keep his disease quiet and campaigned publicly to encourage preventive treatments. He inspired our family to carry on that mission and to fight what my dad called the Big C. All this has been made possible by my father's legacy of determination and a community of supporters who have helped expand upon that legacy. If you'd like to know more about what the Wayne family is doing to fight cancer, just go to johnwayne.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Uh, you know, our next guest has been on a few times, and we've been talking about directors, you know, Otto Preminger, William Friedkin, and today we're, we're going to be with Nat Segaloff again, writer, producer, journalist, talking about another filmmaker 
who is both a writer and director, and one one of the most interesting writer directors of the last century into this century, John Milius. Nat, welcome again to Connor's Corner. It's a pleasure being back. Thank you. Okay. Now, for the audience, who who is John Milius? John Milius is considered the best writer of the whole group of young filmmakers who went through the University of Southern California in the late 60s and the days where the film generation was just being born. John began as first as a cartoonist and as a writer, and he, he wrote Apocalypse Now. He wrote the famous Indianapolis speech from Jaws. He kind of doctored a lot of people's scripts and eventually became a director himself in 1973 with the movie Dillinger, and he's responsible for some of the most iconoclastic movies of the last couple of decades. He's he's a political conservative, but he's not nuts, and he is uh, just the, the the most remarkable I he was person nuts, you'd ever okay. want to meet. No, no. Not, well, not with me. I've known him okay. for 50 years. Trust right. me, there's no nuttage in him. You know, when I was in the service and I was in the Army, the first movie I saw directed by him was Dillinger. And I loved the movie mm. because I'm an old... John Ford fan, and I like Ben Johnson, and of course, Sam Peckinpah, Ben Johnson, and Warren Oates. And, you know, that was one of the first films that gave those guys a really good platform for the, to show their abilities as actors on. And, you know, obviously it was violent. And then other guys like Harry Dean Stanton, and Jeffrey Lewis, and Richard Dreyfus. It was, it was a great cast. And, you know, I, I wouldn't call it a great movie, but it was a very entertaining movie. It was. It certainly was. And it was, of course, the, the, the film that allowed him to get his directing chops. He had previously written a film that had some similar themes. He had written Evil Knievel for George Hamilton to star in that Marvin Chomsky directed. And it's a, a heroic story of a larger-than-life character. And Dillinger was certainly larger-than-life, too, uh, especially because he's famous for saying, and he may not have said it, but as John would put it, if he didn't say it, he should have. You'd do what i do if you had the guts. <laughs> and that's the kind of character that he was. And even from the first scene where, and I'm not going to quote it here, you know, he's, he's talking with a bank teller, but we don't know he's going to rob the bank. And he says, you know, keep your places. You're being robbed by the Dillinger gang. That's the best there is. You're going to lose some money today, but you're going to get stories you can tell your children and your grandchildren. This could be the greatest moment of your life. Don't make it your last. Now, who writes like that? <laughs> No, and you know, and you, you brought up Jaws and the uh, the Indianapolis speech, and that's probably one of the greatest few minutes. I don't know how long it was, but but some of the greatest few minutes in in film history, I think, when Robert Shaw is talking about the Indianapolis. Everything came together. The stars were in alignment. John, you know, Steven Spielberg called him and said, "I want you to write a speech because nowhere in the movie Jaws." And as you know, it filmed for 20 years on Martha's Vineyard. Nowhere does it say why Quint hates sharks. And John thought about the Indianapolis because it wasn't generally known at the time that it was a, a ship that was bringing the atomic bomb to Tini and Delaney. And the Japanese uh, uh, submarine destroyed it. And the men were in the water until the sharks ate them. Well, everybody worked on that script, not just John, but also Howard Sackler, who had written the script, Nathaniel Benchley. Uh, Steven Spielberg, of course, Carl Gottlieb, who got the main credit for Jaws, and uh, then Robert Shaw, who was a pretty good writer himself, kind of shuffled it all together and performed it uh, drunk. And that's what <laughs> we have in the movie now. How do you know he was drunk? Yeah. 
Well, uh, in the Jaws log, which is one of the uh, uh, books that was written about it, I think Carl Gottlieb wrote that one. He mentioned he'd been in the Peach Brandy. Robert Robert Shaw was no stranger to uh, the spirits, shall we say? Uh huh. Oh yeah, you're just making out because he was Irish. <laughs> uh, maybe uh, maybe some Welsh in there too. But I, I got I got drunk with him once. And that was something I, I should be proud of. Uh, he was on a press tour for one of the films he made, and I was the publicist. And after the press luncheon, he, we had some time to kill, so he started telling me some stories, and we started drinking. And he was belting back double scotches. I was belting back single bourbons. Three single bourbons put me away. He had three double scotches and walked out as if he just went, tea. And I was crawling for the car. <laughs> so he, I don't remember all of the conversation, but I do remember he was one of the most extraordinary, charismatic, and talented people I've ever met. Yeah, now we're, we're getting off the beaten path here, but when did he pass away? <laughs> he was very young, right? Fairly young. I think in his 50s. It was yeah. everything got to him. Um, I don't know. There's a wonderful documentary you can find on YouTube about it. All right, well, getting back to our, you know, John Millius. John what, Millius. What can you tell us about him? I mean, you obviously you know him pretty well, but what was his vision behind his films? Well, John believes in the classic hero, and the classic hero is someone who appears, undergoes a certain amount of change, changes the society that he's in, and then he goes off on his own. The important thing about a hero, and this can be seen in a lot of his movies, in particular, Farewell to the King, is that the hero becomes a hero when he leaves at the peak of his effectiveness. Nobody wants to see a hero getting old or wounded or wizened or breaking down joint by joint. That a hero is someone who imparts upon others. For example, he wrote in one of his Genghis Khan scripts, he says he would gather people around him and uh, Khan would kill one person, but let all the others live. And all these others would go seeing how frightening Khan was, but also how merciful he could be. And that's what you want. You want, in a sense, your reputation to precede you. Just like the herald in the old Roman days would be the one dispatched as a messenger from the advancing general to go in and warn everybody that the general was coming. You want a good advance. You want to have a good first scene in the movie. And that's what John was able to do. He himself was such a large personality, rather is such a large personality, that he commands attention and respect and creates these larger-than-life heroes, be it um, Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now or Leroy in Farewell to the King or Dillinger or even the surfers in Big Wednesday. They're all people who are infused with heroism. Whether they like it or not doesn't matter. They are heroes, and they have to deal with it. What was the next film he directed after Dillinger? Oh, you're pressing me. It was right, The Wind, was the the wind Lion. and the Lion. A great boy's own movie with Sean Connery as the Raizuli who kidnaps Candace Bergen as Eden Patakaris in Morocco uh, during World War One and uh, holds her for ransom because President Roosevelt, not World War One, but President Roosevelt, um, uh, he wants Roosevelt to, uh, uh, to come to a showdown with him. They will fight it out with rifles if they have to. It's a wonderful, wonderful film, of course, with a terrific Jerry Goldsmith score. Yeah. And it's based on a true incident. And Brian Keith was a great Teddy Roosevelt. Well, he told John that it was his favorite role of all time. Oh, really? Teddy okay. Roosevelt. That's nice. And he was to know. wonderful. And in fact, when John made what uh, is one of his, his last films, um, The uh, Rough Riders, Brian Keith, who was dying of cancer at the time, 
uh, agreed to play a role in that film, which he played seated. And it was the last thing that he ever played, and he did it for John. Yeah, well, that that was interesting because he plays McKinley in that, so he plays, you know, two presidents in the same time period. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and then he went home and took his own life. Right after that? Yeah, pretty close. Oh, yeah. so that's very I mean, sad. He, 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 went out, he went out as he lived, entirely on his own terms, Brian Keith. Great, great man. Great actor. Well, great actor, yeah. And I mean... Again, as Teddy Roosevelt, he he was great in that film. And again, you had a lot of the same, you know, good supporting actors like Jeffrey Lewis and Steve Canale and, uh, of course, Sean Connery. And yeah, what, John what, Huston. John Huston, yeah. <laughs> yeah. What? Let me ask you something. Like, Milius directing, I guess he had the personality, it wouldn't matter. But he's directing John Huston. Is there any, like, trepidation or... You know, like, here's one of the great directors, and, you know, I'm directing him. Was there any trepidation at well, that? The two Johns, Houston and Emilius, had a bit of a history together. And that is that Houston had directed John's previous script, which was The Life and Times of Judge Roy Bean. And he was aboard, and he watched Houston day by day change his script. But he considered himself battle-scarred, but again, he was able to study under John Houston. And Houston said, for example, at one time, uh, there's something wrong with this with this scene. I want you to change the camera work. And he goes off into his trailer and has John join him. And John says to, to Houston, what's wrong with the scene? And Houston said, nothing's wrong with the scene, but I wanted to call my people who were collecting pre-Columbian art, and I, I needed a break, so I went to my trailer. <laughs> he would teach him tricks like, tricks like that. Milius and Houston went out for a... <laughs> Milius and Houston went out for a walk in the desert. Now, Houston had emphysema. And he made it just so far, started to pant and pant. And he said, John, you've got to help me. Go and get some beer or a cigar or something. And, and Emilius thought to himself, I'm going to be the one who killed John Houston. But eventually <laughs> he pulled through. And so they, you know, he said, even though Houston was a liberal and he messed up his script, he still loved the man. And so he was happy to put him in a secretary and say, hey, in Wind and the Lion. You know, they were bigger than the movies they made. That's what these great characters are. How did Houston mess up his script? Because that's an interesting movie, you know, Roy being there. Yes, well, the script, it's been published in paperback. It's one of the most beautifully written screenplays you'll ever read. The language itself is written in the present tense, and it's written as if it was a tale being told to you by somebody else. They changed the ending, and they made it what has been called a Beverly Hills Western. Uh, it just it had a different tone than Milius had wanted. Milius had wanted to have a very heroic and a romantic tone. And although the end is fairly romantic now, for those listening, it's about Judge Roy Bean, who brought law and order to the land west of the Pecos River, and how he installed himself as regent, if you will, in the town of Vinegaroon. But he always yearned to meet Lily Langtree, the famous Jersey Lily, the entertainer. Throughout his entire life, he tries to meet her, it doesn't work out, and only in death does he meet her, but he doesn't really, and that is that he's been killed, and then... Lily comes to the town and says, oh, yes, whatever happened to that funny old judge who used to write me letters? Well, in the movie, it's several years later that Lily Langtree comes to town. But in the script, and it's so beautiful, Bean is killed, and they load his coffin onto the train to take her to be buried somewhere. And it's the same train that Lily Langtree is on. And he's left a letter to her saying, dear Lily, I've always loved you, even though I've never met. And the script 
says the reflection of his coffin being loaded onto the train is seen in the reflection of the window through which Lily Langtree is reading the letter. And then the script ends, this is how Judge Roy Bean brought law and order to the land west of the Pecos. It is so beautiful. That is, that and is. Now, Conan, what can you say about Conan, with the, the first Conan movie, I guess? Well, that's the best one, of course, and yes. it's the one that created the legend not only of Conan, but also of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Between that and The Terminator, you've got two films that really shaped Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis, and uh, as, as John says, uh, they, they had some fights along the way. Um, there, there's one story where Dino had seconded a really obnoxious assistant director to work on the movie, and John didn't like him. He wanted to get him fired. But Dino said, essentially, okay, you can fire my guy, but I have to fire one of your guys. So John Millia said it was like a prisoner exchange. But that's how you had to deal with, with, with Dino. And I said, what was it like working with Dino De Laurentiis, who could be very demanding? And John said, well, Conan had to spend time on the Wheel of Pain, and I had to spend time with Dino. <laughs> so that was <laughs> really <laughs> All right, I guess the next one, Apocalypse Now, which, of course, Francis Ford Coppola directed. But what, what did John Milius have to do with Apocalypse Now? Well, that was originally a script written based sort of on Heart of Darkness that uh, he was going to shoot in 16mm uh, in, in Vietnam in, in the late 60s when you didn't do that. Um, George Lucas was going to shoot it because John had written it for him. But it was written with money from Zoetrope, which was the company that Francis Coppola had founded, and it was getting some money from Warner Brothers to encourage young filmmakers. Well, Warner Brothers pulled the plug after Coppola had made uh, uh, some films they didn't like, and they were stuck with his script. And Coppola looked at the script and said, well, hell, if John wrote it, and Lucas wants to direct it. Maybe, maybe there's something in this nice toy. And he took it over. And so he was always generous and always credited John Milius with having written it. And they worked on it together for a long time, and even when they were shooting it in the, in the Philippines. So it was Milius who actually based it on Heart of Darkness and reinterpreted it. Uh, many, many times it went back and forth. Milius claimed he only ever read Heart of Darkness once when he was in school. But I think the film's feeling hues much closer to the novel than he wants to admit. But it did get away from all of them. And as you know, there's books and movies about Apocalypse Now. And uh, Coppola has been extremely generous in, in keeping John involved in all of them. So the characters that were like, like Kurtz and Martin Sheen and Robert Duvall, their characters. I mean, right, again, you know, some of the lines in some of these films, you know, like I, I love the smell of napalm in the morning. And I mean, I know so many Vietnam like vets that thought that was great. Well, the original character name for the Robert Duvall character was Carnage, K-H-A-R-N-H-E-E, which is kind of on the nose. I think they, they changed it. Um, I asked Martin Sheen what uh, Willard's first name was, because it's not specified anywhere. And he said, oh, the first name of Willard is Ben. I said, well, how did you come up with that? And he said, well, it's based on the rats. Willard is a rat movie, and Ben is the name of the rat. And <laughs> apparently it's true. <laughs> How, how did John Milius feel about the final product of Apocalypse Now? Well, he's very proud of it. I mean, my God, he's been involved in one of the greatest movies ever made. I think he's very proud of that film and has been all along. And as long as he could, was able to make positive statements about it and do interviews and all kinds of things. Yeah, and you want to tell the audience who it lost to in the Academy Awards for Best Picture? Oh, God. Kramer. You know, I don't think about awards. Yeah, but, but yeah, I don't either, but Kramer that's one of the reasons. Kramer v. Kramer? 
Who's the well, best picture know, the of film... Apocalypse Now? Yeah. You know, there's a book called Alternate Oscars by a great writer named Danny Perry. And you look at those and you realize that it's usually the second best film that wins the Academy Award. I mean, Kramer's a good film, but let's face it, Apocalypse Now? Or look at Citizen Kane, Lost to How Green Was My Valley. They're great films, but Citizen Kane is greater. The Academy, I think, is nervous about giving awards to films that change the nature of motion pictures because it puts everybody at risk. I think they like to give the Academy Award to films that can confirm the nature of cinema. But that's just my philosophy. I remember once a quote by Andrew Sars that How Green Was My Valley was the best picture ever to win an Academy Award, even though it wasn't the best picture of the year. That's strange. Yeah, well... Well, Sarah's was off on his own planet sometime. Yeah, I know. I liked him, though. Yeah. All right, so we have Conan, we have Apocalypse Now. Um, let, let's go toward the end of his career, because we're running a little bit out of time. The Rough Riders. Now, that was a TV movie, but a lot of people, a lot of people liked it, and what, what was John's comments on it? Well, it was historically accurate, as historically accurate as he could make it. And to have it run at such a long time, it's what, three hours long or something, or four hours, on, on the Turner station, it gave him a chance to really talk about not only President Roosevelt, which he loved to talk about, but also about the battle of that time and the politics of the time. And it's one of the few films I've ever seen where in all the battle sequences, you know exactly who is who and where they are. It's brilliantly laid out, even for what was then a small screen. So I think it's it's a masterful job of storytelling and also logistics in terms of, of staging a battle. And it does show about the change in America, the change in social status, and the kind of people who were involved in the Spanish-American War and the mentality that eventually rolled over into World War One. And, you know, that was a TV movie... Was there much difference in how he directed a TV movie as opposed to a theatrical released movie? Faster, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't. I didn't. didn't in, in writing the book, um, Big Bad John, I, I didn't go into exactly how he directs various films. You know, by the time you're on the floor or on the soundstage or on location, you've done most of your work. The rest is just making sure everybody does their job. But he's he's a very Literary director, he likes people to hold to the script unless they have something better. And he coerces the actors to do what he wants. You know, the best directors are those who set up situations on the set wherein the actors can react like the characters they play. Uh, and that's what John is is blessed to be able to do. If, if you had to tell the audience, as, as far as a director, what film would you tell them to watch to get a good idea of who... John Milius was well it's the film that nobody thinks about and although he's you know written Apocalypse Now and he's directed a lot of great hits like Red Dawn which is very very popular um, I, I think his finest and most personal film is Big Wednesday which is about three surfers Jan Michael Vincent William Catt and Gary Busey because it's a story about the big names back in the 60s and how they they became heroes and they were regarded by their friends and how time in a sense passed them by it's about people who peak early and who are reluctant heroes and who have to bear the mantle of heroism, even though they themselves feel that they're not heroes. It's about the pressure we put on people to be things that perhaps they don't want to be. And it's a story about nostalgia, a story about the era. It's only slightly about politics. It's mostly about the change that people go through in a community surfing where you really don't think about all of this stuff. 
but it's really a story about storytelling and about heroes and reluctant heroes. All right, you want to tell the audience why we're not hearing about John Milius too much today? John had a stroke back in 2010, and it took his speech, which is, as Steven Spielberg says in a documentary and in my book, the worst thing that could possibly happen to a storyteller. I saw John a couple of weeks ago. We are in touch. He lives in town. He's still trying to get a film together. He won't direct it, of course, that uh, he's going to be one of the producers and, of course, the writer. And it kind of pulled him out of circulation. But, you know, every now and then he'll still have a, a Thursday evening where we all go over there and smoke cigars and, and fart and cuss. And it, it keeps him involved in things. And a lot of people do make calls to him and, and come by and visit him whether it's Francis Coppola or Arnold Schwarzenegger or anybody else. John is still very much loved and very much a force. And I'm very fond of him. Well, I mean, he, he's got a great body of work, and I mean, there are probably more great quotes from either the films he directed or he wrote than any other, and I don't think we could go through all of them, but, you know, and, and I might go through some of them with the audience after we finish this interview, but he really is a, a remarkable figure and please tell him he has a lot of admirers in new york that appreciate his work i will certainly tell him i will certainly tell him and and for those of you who are interested the uh, the book is is only partly a biography it's also an extended question and answer where these quotes come out unadulterated exactly as john says them and i must tell you that i interview a lot of people same as you do and john is one of those people whose words i didn't have to rewrite very much <laughs> He speaks in a literary, linear form that's absolutely quotable and totally mesmerizing. All right. Well, very good. Now, what's the name of your book again, just so our audience has a chance to look it up? It's called Big Bad John, The John Milius Interviews. It has a cover, an original art cover, which is done by Thomas Warming, who's a fine artist out here. I'm the guy who took down the words, and John and I really collaborated on it. They can get it from Bear Manor Media, who is the publisher, but also it's available on Amazon and any place that online booksellers do business. Big Bad John. Big Bad John. I don't think I think we can remember that one. Nat, thanks very <laughs> much for you know communicating with us here in Brooklyn. Stay well out there. I hope the weather's good. Thank you again for the opportunity to talk about John Millius. Very good. Thank you very much. We really appreciate it. So long. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, now accompanied by my wife, Beth. Yes, I'm here. And my son, Michael. Hello, everyone. Thanks for sticking with us. Now, just one point about the John Milius interview. One thing we didn't mention in it is that John Milius' son, who's a lawyer, I understand, in California, his name is Ethan. 
and he was named for <laughs> Ethan Edwards. So our searcher fans can take that to Enjoy the bank for what it's one. worth. Yeah, that's right. Now, Beth, you had a question about Medicaid. Right. This goes back to, I know y'all were focusing in on something else, but earlier when I was talking about going to the nursing home and the CFO was saying it's not our job to you know protect people's money, they got to go someplace else. Well, this particular event, yes, things happen all the time, but we then had a woman in her 80s who had maybe $15,000 left after all the years of being married because she was just paying out money, paying out money, paying out money. She didn't, I remember she was, she was afraid she wasn't even going to be paying for her funeral. Um, would you please explain to everybody what spousal refusal means? Okay, so let's say you have a married couple. Let's say their assets are over $100,000, and of course I always use round numbers. And basically, let's say we have a couple uh, to have a house and a couple hundred thousand dollars in the bank. Well, husband's going to a nursing home. We transfer all the assets, except right now the Medicaid limit is 30000 So the husband keeps a $30,000 dollar joint bank account with his wife. We said they had 200000 so we switched the 170000 over to the wife's name. We switched the deed of the house into a trust, hopefully, in the wife's name, giving the husband the right to live there and certain powers over the house So we for certain tax benefits and advantages, so he's still part owner of the house. Um, and in that case, the wife signs what we call a spouse refusal. And you know, if you live in New York City, spouse refuse is not a dramatic term. It sounds dramatic in itself, but basically it's a form you sign that the city gives you saying that you refuse to have your assets paid for your spouse's support. So in this case, the husband becomes eligible for Medicaid. Now, the city reserves the right. Now, of course, I'm talking focus more on the city because the counties are a little bit different in their enforcement schemes. But let's say for the city then retains the right to sue for support. In the example I just gave you, they're not going to sue for support. I mean, policies could change. Things could happen. Maybe the migrant situation, they're going to try to cut back on the budget and try to sue other people for support. But ordinarily in those circumstances, modest modest amount of estate, they usually don't sue for support. And a lot of times the spouse's income might be below the level that you can sue for support on anyway. So, But husband transfers all the assets to wife. Wife signs spouse refusal, husband gets Medicaid. Then the city can sue for support, but if the spouse wants to take planning on her own part, we can protect her assets where the city, in effect, gets nothing. And we can do that. I mean, sometimes it's a, a hard decision to make. It sounds hard to sign a spouse refusal, but in reality, it's not that hard. And basically, between a married couple, almost whatever the circumstances are, one of them can get home care or nursing home Medicaid, you know, with within a few months. And when we're talking about the changes in the home care Medicaid law, there's no change, at least now. We'll see what happens with the new legislature coming into being next uh, January. But as of now, there's no plan, as far as I know, to change the spousal refusal laws. So... 
even for home care Medicaid or whatever, when the changes come into face April 1st, you still can take something. We switch everything from husband and wife to wife. Husband gets Medicaid after the wife signs a spousal refusal. It's maybe not quite as simple as what I'm making it out to be, but in, in practical purposes, that's the way it, you know, it goes out. But ultimately, people won't, you won't have a husband or a wife that's left penniless, you know, because one of them gets real sick. I mean, didn't this, didn't Ronald Reagan start this idea that you didn't want to impoverish the middle class because of health issues? Yeah, part of it was done back. A lot of these laws were put into place in the 1980s uh, during the Reagan administration, but uh, you know, you know, they've been overhauled so many times in the last 30, 40 years. Yeah, when I think about it, 86 is almost 40 years ago now. I think we're getting old. Yeah, so, I, I mean, a lot of these things were overhauled during, you know, all these years. But this is what I can say as a wrap-up as far as estate planning. If you want to come in and talk these things over, the laws are confusing. They don't necessarily make sense. And it does make a difference what state you live in. And to some extent, it makes a difference what county you live in because even though the laws are the same let's say in in new york city as nassau county or westchester county they're interpreted or enforced slightly differently depending on those counties so the rules don't make sense and one thing you can't do is talk to your neighbor who lives in new jersey about what you could or could not do in new jersey and vice versa so you know don't i mean you can talk to your neighbors obviously but don't rely on what your neighbor tells you don't rely on what your brother-in-law tells you you know, get the right advice. You want to come in here and, and Connors and Sullivan, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And, you know, and, and here's one thing we were just talking about this morning in the office. If you need somebody to speak a different language, Michael, you have the list somewhere there, don't you? Yes, I do. All right, so as far as languages that we've got you covered for here at Connors and Sullivan, um, start off obviously with English, and then we get into Spanish, Italian, Greek, Russian, Ukrainian, Polish, Romanian, Mandarin, Cantonese, Fujianese, Tagalog, and Hindi. All right, so if you have somebody who speaks any of those languages, um, you know, let's say you have an older relative who doesn't speak English fluently, you know, we, we can talk to the people in those languages. Now, if you don't, we might be able to get an interpreter or whatever. If there's a language not out there, we may know somebody who can interpret for us. But, uh, again, if you want, give us a call at Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. We don't charge for the first consultation. The initial consultation is free. Everything we do as far as estate planning and elder laws on a flat fee basis, we don't charge by the hour. We charge by the job. And I've been doing this long enough where I usually know how much it costs, you know, to get the job done. So I'll give you an estimate. We'll keep to the estimate. And then you take it from there. We have offices in Brooklyn. 7408 Fifth Avenue, Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, Middle Village, Queens, Metropolitan Avenue, Bayside, Queens, Bell Boulevard, Staten Island, Davis Avenue, off Forest Avenue, Manhattan, we're at East 59th Street. And hopefully one of those offices is reasonably close to you. I'm sorry we're not in the Bronx, but we're spread. Manhattan's not so bad. You can come straight down from the Bronx. A lot of people who drive, you take the Throgs Neck Bridge. That's right. And as soon as you get off the Throgs Neck Bridge, you're right near our office. Right. You know, you're on Northern Boulevard, 
And we're on Northern Boulevard and Bell. We're not quite on Northern Boulevard. We're one block north of Northern Boulevard on Bell Boulevard. So, um, and I go to each one of the offices usually once a week or so. So if you do want to see, schedule me, you're more than welcome to do that. Again, give us a call at 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you're in a crisis situation, don't guess about what you should do. Don't rely on the advice of your neighbor. Please don't rely on the advice of a social worker who works for maybe the nursing home and not you. Please don't rely on the, the advice of, of, of a real estate lawyer. Don't think that you speak to one lawyer or lawyers the same. And, and the same thing applies in reverse. If you're going to get a divorce, don't call me for a consultation. I'm not going to really be able to help you. Uh, you get arrested, don't call me up. I, I don't know what to tell you except from watching enough movies. Don't say anything to the police. Yeah, don't, don't <laughs> no. talk to the police talk without the police. your attorney. Right. Jeez, we watch these mysteries all the time. Yeah. And these people spill their guts. Yes, I killed them. And I'm sitting there going... Where's where's this person's lawyer? And there's no obligation for the police to be honest with you in some of these cases. That's terrible. Yeah, so, again, thank you for listening. We'll be here next week at the same time and places. And, again, if you want an appointment in between, give us a call at 718-238-6500. Thank you for listening. Ask the lawyer. See you next week at the same time and places. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Are you or your parents' assets protected from nursing home bills? Did you know these bills can exceed $15,000 a month? People work their entire lives to live comfortably in retirement, but when people become ill and need to go to a nursing home or receive home care, the bills can drain their assets, leaving many people bankrupt. The good news is that you can prevent that from happening if you plan in advance. Connors and Sullivan's lawyers can customize a plan that specifically protects your interests, including your home. Schedule a free comprehensive telephone consultation with Mike Connors to discuss your issues and concerns from the security of your home. Call today, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. Don't let nursing home bills take your life's savings and leave you and your loved ones bankrupt. Don't wait another minute. Mike Connors can take you through the process by telephone and start a plan designed for you today. That's 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. The preceding pre-recorded program paid for by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.